I think one important thing to, to mention here, and not everyone knows that, is I used to be really afraid of vaccinations. I had my first baby after six years, so needless to say, a lot of effort, a lot of science, a lot of davening and prayers, very wanted pregnancy. And I ended up at a chiropractor because my back started to hurt like most good pregnant ladies. And he gave me this pile of propaganda and told me, you know, why would you want to put this in your child? It's full of toxic substances, things like that. It didn't take long for me to kind of go off the deep end. I was a nurse already, but you know, anyone is susceptible to misinformation. I think that's a very important takeaway. Giving birth is one of the most significant events of your life. Sadly, the joy that you should feel can often be replaced with anxiety and helplessness instead. As a labor and delivery nurse, I'm revealing insider information to educate you, reassure you, and decrease your fear. In this podcast, you'll hear empowering birth stories and experts weigh in on a range of topics. Being Jewish also has me exploring Judaism's influence on the reproductive experience. However, I speak to anyone wishing to navigate their journey with more joy and confidence. I'm your host, Hani Fingerer, and you're listening to the Happy Birthway Podcast. Welcome to episode 70 of the Happy Birthway Podcast. I hope that for those of you who celebrated Pesach Passover, I hope that you had a beautiful one. Thank you, Hashem. I myself really did, and I am grateful for that. And I hope that you are transitioning smoothly and well back into real life. I'm really excited for this episode to bring to you an interview with Dr. Blimi Marcus. Yes, she is a doctor, but in nursing, not a medical physician. And she's going to share some really enlightening, good information with us about vaccines. And we're going to talk about infections in general and also about the polio outbreak that's currently going on that there was a lot of talk about I think you know summertime but it's still ongoing and it's important to talk about as well and Blini is going to talk about a project that she's working on there's going to be a conference coming up so listen to the episode to learn more about it the best part is is that you my dear podcast audience can get a free ticket to this conference that is going to be six hours in an awesome location with breakfast and lunch and networking and drinks served at the end. Um, use code free ride. That's F R E E R I D E in the promo code section. And you can register by going into the episode show notes. Listen to this episode to hear what it's all about. And I hope to be there too. Not 100%, but really, really working on it. So if you go, please greet me and say hello. One more caveat before I start the episode. If you are an avid listener and you've listened to a lot of my episodes, you'll know that I am very self-conscious of my audio and making sure that I have good quality audio. It is very important to me. I myself only like to listen to podcasts that have clear, good voices on it and that are just well edited. And I try to do the same for mine. And I'm using a new recording program, which this was the first interview I did on this new recording program. And I was wearing my AirPods just for the sound to hear the sound. And I thought I was recording through my trusty Blue Yeti mic that I have that I love so much. But in reality, I was recording into the mic of my AirPods. So the quality is not going to be my usual standard. I don't even know why I feel like I have to say that but I do because I was kind of disappointed when I realized that after the interview. 
but I think that you will enjoy the content very much and you still can hear me. All right, without further ado, enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Happy Birthway Podcast, Dr. Blini Marcus. If you can please introduce yourself to our audience. Sure. Um, I'm a nurse practitioner. I work in oncology. I always have. Um, but people seem to often know me more because I've become very vocal in um, vaccine spaces, particularly a few years ago when there was a very large measles outbreak in the from community. So that's where I'm mostly known for. But my first passion always has been oncology. I also teach doctoral students at Hunter, where I got my DNP. So I kind of keep um, a couple of things going at the same time. That's a very prestigious nursing school of nursing. That's like, I remember when I was applying, everyone said, oh, that's a really hard school to get into. So kudos to you. So let's dive in. We're going to be talking about vaccinations today. Pregnancy is a time where people are really afraid of taking medications and of just, you know, any substances. And uh, it is common for people to be afraid. The most common vaccines that are offered during pregnancy are the Tdap vaccine, which is the whooping cough vaccine, and the flu vaccine during the time of um, you know flu season, and then the MMR vaccine is offered after pregnancy if anyone is not immune to rubella. Which maybe you can explain a little bit why you know pregnant women are tested for rubella in the first place during pregnancy, how that can affect the pregnancy, and why the MMR is actually not offered during pregnancy but in the postpartum period as well. So we'll cover all of that, and then I also like to cover. You know, the current polio outbreak, and if you want to touch on the measles outbreak a few years ago, teach us everything you know. I think one important thing to, to mention here, and not everyone knows that, is I used to be really afraid of vaccinations. I had my first baby after six years, so needless to say, a lot of effort, a lot of science, a lot of davening and prayers, um, very wanted pregnancy. And I ended up at a chiropractor because my back started to hurt like most good pregnant ladies. And he gave me this pile of propaganda um, and told me, you know, why would you want to put this in your child? It's full of toxic substances, things like that. It didn't take long for me to kind of go off the deep end. I was a nurse already, but you know, anyone is susceptible to misinformation. I think that's a very important takeaway. Um, you know, especially during COVID, we know that there were so many polarized discussions, so many, so many talks about what's accurate information, what's politicized, what's misinformation. And a lot of people would ask, like, why are nurses anti-mask? Why are nurses not getting vaccinated? Why are nurses sharing things that don't end up being true? And the same thing about physicians. And my answer is always, Everyone is susceptible to fear, um, to fear mongering, to wrong information, to misinformation, um, or to or, or or the preference is to wait and see rather than do something active now. Um, and there's a very large anti-vaccine organization in the From community, and their motto is: "You can always vaccinate later. You can never unvaccinate." So that's something that appeals to a lot of people who have heard that vaccines are unsafe. So that definitely uh, resonated with me. And when my daughter was born, I deferred all of her vaccines initially, only started vaccinating when she was a few months old. My pediatrician was relatively patient and I kept going back slowly. You know, every month or two, I went back for just single dose vaccines because one of the most common concerns about vaccines is that we're giving our babies too many vaccines at 
you know, at one time when they're too young, when their immune system can't handle it. And I believed all that at the time. Um, but then when you fast forward a couple years later, I'd finished my doctorate and the doctorate degree is very heavily invested in understanding how to read research because they want nurse practitioners with their doctorate to be able to apply the research to their clinical practice. So understanding research studies and quality improvement projects and how to understand, you know, how to read all of that is very important. And that's when I suddenly started realizing that the data people had been giving me was not actually data. It was a lot of twisted and tweaked misinformation. So I kind of made a complete 180. And uh, about five years after my daughter was born, I had my son and my doctor and I joke that I used to bring him in and said, like, can we just do like all his shots today? Just all of them. Just give me like the two month old, the four month old, the six month old. Let's just do everything at once. Um, <laughs> now, of course, we didn't. It's created on a specific schedule for efficacy and safety um, to protect babies for the, the diseases they're at risk at that time. For example, as you know, pertussis is one of the most dangerous diseases to tiny infants because the cough makes it difficult for them to breathe, get in that oxygen. Uh, they come in with broken ribs sometimes if they have pertussis and they need to be hospitalized. So that's why it's given at two months and four months and six months. So there's a reason for the way the schedule is created. But then in 2019, when there was this measles outbreak, a lot of people were reaching out to me and saying, oh, I hear you're a nurse. Do you know anything about the MMR? And I started spending a lot of time on reading the science behind a lot of the fallacies and realizing that they're really good answers to the questions that people have. And that's kind of how I fell into this space. And what's very interesting to see, and this is probably something many people are saying right now, is, you know, vaccine hesitancy is prevalent across the whole globe, you know, in all communities, in all continents. Um, even, and, you know, people talk about how in America we're so privileged to have the option of vaccines and people turn them down. There's also vaccine hesitancy in countries in Africa and in the Middle East that are poorer countries. People still have fear. But with COVID, I think a lot changed. And, you know, you and I have discussed this before, where for the first time in everyone's lives, we're kind of watching the science unfold, right? We're watching the situation on the ground change. We're watching variants change and the efficacy of vaccines change and recommendations from policymakers and from physicians change. And for me personally, and for a lot of people in the medical field, it makes sense, right? Your policies do have to change in response to changing situations on the ground. It doesn't mean you're deliberately lied to. It means things are changing. But to many people, they feel that they were lied to or that what they were told yesterday is no longer true today. And that causes a lot of confusion. And what we're seeing are even higher rates of people refusing to vaccinate and turning away from evidence. Yeah. Medicine. And I want to mention that, that with yeah. you talking about the science unfolding throughout the pandemic, the interesting thing is, is that COVID, the coronavirus, right? COVID is one strain of the coronavirus. There are several coronaviruses, but the coronavirus is characteristically mutates much faster than some other viruses like the flu virus. And so what else was interesting yeah. was that like the strains kept changing and we had to keep up with that on top of everything else going on in the pandemic. So just to speak to that science unfolding that you were talking about where at one point, one thing was true, but then as the actual COVID uh, virus started to change so rapidly, then we have to adapt you know, continuously to that. 
And um, yeah, like you said, you know, with the whole vaccine and all the controversies around it, unfortunately, that also started to um, spread, you know, in people's minds to other vaccines. And so they started, especially those who were kind of like between the two, you know, I feel like the people that were very decisive, um, and very strong, strongly believed in the importance and the safety of vaccinations. I don't know how much they shifted. And I think the people that are extremely, you know, on the other side of the extreme, I, I'm sure this actually gave them some, fi- some you know, fuel for their fire. Um, but those right. who were in the middle mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, listening to both sides and maybe they've gone to a chiropractor or someone else who had told them, oh, vaccines are so dangerous. But then also at the same time, they were seeing a practitioner that they trusted that told them, no, the vaccines are completely safe and kind of in the middle. But I feel like some people started to worry about that as well and maybe shifted their um, perspective of vaccines in general. So that may have done some harm because of that, because the COVID vaccine is different than the childhood vaccines that we have and, you know, that we give through pregnancy and through other phases of life, like the pneumococcal vaccine and um, old people or those who have some risk for respiratory illnesses to be exacerbated more. And um, these are well-established vaccines that have been around for a long time. The mechanism of action is different. And so like, it's kind of like a completely different ball game, like a completely different world than the, the newer COVID vaccine. Yes. So you're, you're right about that. Um, the mistrust that people had, and it's been over three years at this point, you know, it it fostered and there were a lot of bad actors who who capitalized on that. You know, people, like you said, who are anti-vaccine for a long time or anti-establishment or however they identified as, you know, free thinkers or, you know, going against the grain or whatever it was. A lot of people capitalized that, on that and deliberately fostered, you know, a very confusing time of conflicting information. And now you have a lot of people, these are parents who want to make the best decisions for themselves, for their children, for their families, suddenly not sure who to trust, who to believe. And I, you know, I've been also speaking with pediatricians who said that a lot of their patients are starting to turn down antibiotics. Um, one pediatrician said a, a parent brought in a child with a um, MRSA infection and he prescribed antibiotics. They came back three weeks later. It was worse. They never took the medication. They went for leech therapy. There's a very big movement now away from traditional Western medicine towards holistic and alternative medication. And th- and that's a whole new topic. We could talk for hours about what works, what doesn't work, um, you know, what, what, what can be worked together with Western medicine. But the bigger problem is that when you move collectively away from what we know is safe and true and tried, you're going to see detrimental outcomes. And that brings us to polio. I don't know if people are aware of that, but in the developed world, and by that, I mean the Far East, right? Thailand, Singapore, China, Japan, even Russia, um, entire Europe, North and South America, there is no paralytic polio. It doesn't exist in those countries. You do have them in some countries in Africa. You do have them in some countries in the Middle East where vaccination is not high. But there are three from people who have had paralytic polio in the last one year. And they are the only people in the Western world with paralytic polio, three cases, and they're all in from Jews. And 
that set off a lot of alarm bells in the public health spaces in Israel, in London. London has a uh, positive polio in the wastewaters, but they haven't yet identified cases. So thank God for that. But there was one case in New York a year ago, a little less than a year ago, two cases in Israel. Um, one was a four-year-old who's paralyzed, an eight-year-old who's paralyzed, and in New York, a 20-year-old. Friends, if you wear wigs, then you need to hear this. I found a hatful called the Hustle Wig, which was created for busy moms, the long days at work, and everything in between. They make looking good and wearing a wig simple. Their hatful wigs are lined with a breathable jersey fabric, no combs, no clips, and it is literally the most comfortable wig that I have ever worn. Their wigs are some of the most affordable wigs that you can get. They're made from 100% human hair. Now get this, they offer free shipping and exchanges if you order online, as well as no restocking fee if returned. Plus, right now they have a special promotion going on called the Duo Try-On. Order any two wigs to try on in the comfort of your own home while only putting down a deposit for one. Use code TRYON at checkout. They also have lots of customizable options. Go to thehustlewig.com, that's T-H-E-H-U-S-T-L-E-W-I-G dot com. You can also check out their Instagram, The Hustle Wig. And as usual, all of this info will be in my show notes. I just want to quickly backtrack. When you say polio in the wastewater, um, can you just quickly explain why that is a, a reliable method of testing? Because right, some people are asymptomatic with polio. Yes. So most people are asymptomatic with polio, but they can still have caught polio if they're unvaccinated and it sheds in your stool. Um, polio is usually shared by poor hand hygiene. So think of, let's say, daycares with a lot of little babies, um, changing pampers, you know, children who are getting potty trained and not very clean, and even adults who are just imperfect with hand hygiene or bathroom hygiene or, you know, mistakes and stuff like that. So that's the main way it's spread, although it can also spread via droplets, coughing and sneezing. That's just less common. But it's mostly spread um, by what we call contact. And what that means is when they test the wastewaters, if there is polio detected in that, that means people are passing stool with polio in it. That means people have polio. Now, because most cases of polio are asymptomatic, they won't know that. The traditional symptoms are either no symptoms or like light fluish symptoms, body aches, maybe a light fever, you know, malaise, um, maybe a stomach symptom or two. But nobody goes to the doctor for light symptoms like that. And even if you do, in most countries, there's no concept of testing for polio for that because polio is 99% eradicated from most countries. So if you take your kids to the doctor for like being under the weather for two days, they're not testing them for polio. They, they could have polio if they're unvaccinated. And if they're in an area where it's circulating in the wastewater, which London has a few from neighborhoods, which has that, Rockland County and New York City have it in the wastewater and Israel has it in the wastewater. So it's a reliable indicator that polio is spreading, but until someone actually gets paralyzed, which is, you know, one out of 200 people, let's say, you're not going to actually identify a case because you're not checking stool samples from random children who are feeling slightly under the weather. So basically you're saying that until the first case of paralytic polio, we weren't really concerned. But then when that first case emerged, that's when it really, we started to be concerned. Exactly. So public health officials 
have been concerned in the past because they monitor wastewater in high-risk areas that have lower vaccination rates. So they know something's going on. But again, unless there's something that can identify it, like paralysis is not ignored by anyone. You, you show up at a hospital when you can no longer walk or move your legs. And that's when they'll test you. And one of the things they'll test for is polio because other things can cause paralysis. And if it's positive, that's when you know you have a case. But what that also tells you is that if you identified one case of paralysis, that means there are hundreds of asymptomatic yeah. cases. You know, it's not likely that the one person who developed paralysis happens to be the only person right. who has polio. You know what I mean? When you when you find the rare case, it means that it's it's going around. So this is alarming. Um, it's alarming in the non-Jewish world of public health. It's alarming in the from world of public health. Um, it's not really in the news a lot, which in a way is good, right? We don't really want to see ourselves in the news. But if we also don't do something about it, what's going to happen if, God forbid, there's another case in New York? Like, What's going to happen if a New York City a from person gets paralyzed, a child, an adult? You know, it's, it's going to be everywhere. And that's something that concerns me. A, the health issues of unvaccinated people, but also the fact that we'll be in the public eye, which is something no one wants. If it's exclusive to the Jewish community, then that's definitely alarming. And it, it can lead to anti-Semitism and negative associations with the Jewish community, which we know in every single community, there are always going to be fringe groups. There are always going to be outliers, etc. But it seems like this is right now, this polio outbreak is exclusive to the Jewish community. Um, and so, yes, that, that is definitely something that is alarming. It is. And what really upsets me is that in most cases, parents who don't vaccinate their children are victims of misinformation. So now you've got, you know, a four-year-old and an eight-year-old in Israel whose children, who, who cannot walk, right? And with a lot of therapy, they may be able to walk with a walker or a pair of crutches, right? Because sometimes you can regain a certain amount of function, but they'll never really be the same. And this is all preventable. This is all preventable. And what I imagine what these parents must be thinking or going through is is really heartbreaking. Um, you know, in the case of the gentleman in Rockland who was an adult when he caught the polio, developed paralysis, um, his family is very heavily anti-vaccine. They they still don't believe that he ever had polio. Um, you know, they're very much entrenched in their beliefs. So. There's nothing you could do about it. You know, their beliefs are that strong. They're active in anti-vaccine spaces and sharing beliefs that they believe. But for most parents, they're just really trying their best to do what's best for their children. And then something as tragic as this can happen. And that's one reason why I'm just really, really passionate about nurses being on top of these kinds of situations, being very familiar with common answers to common questions and being a voice for advocacy because this shouldn't be happening in 2023, you know, but with the digital age and the prevalence of social media, even in from spaces, everyone tells me, oh, Jewish people aren't connected. That's not true. Everyone's got WhatsApp where you can have little blips of misinformation. I'm sure you've seen it through COVID, you know, um, 5,000 children died of the COVID vaccine and, you know, this and this drug treats COVID. Like it's, it's so easy to get the wrong information through your phone right now that you need an equal amount of people dedicated to undoing that, you know, and that's just something I'm, I'm really passionate about. And over the last few years, um, the work that I started with the measles outbreak in terms of being a group of 
nurse-led providers who can answer questions that parents have about vaccines. You know, they've received all the misinformation. They've been told vaccines are dangerous. They've been told that vaccines cause autism, they cause SIDS, and so many other syndromes that they associate with vaccines. It's so important to counter that with accurate information so that we don't end up in a space like this. And, and, that, and we're here now with polio, but it's never too late to enter these spaces and be a voice for evidence-based answers and helping parents with this information. And there's so much to talk about this. Like we can spend hours on it, which I'm going to mention in a little bit what uh, your current project is regarding this. But also if you can backtrack and now that we've spoken about the poll outbreak, can you backtrack a little bit? And we mentioned we were going to talk about pregnancy recommended vaccinations. I would love for you to give us a little overview about that and about what the common concerns are regarding that and actually what the research says. Absolutely. So I've actually gotten very passionate about vaccines during pregnancy, and I'll tell you why. When women are pregnant, you're in that unique space when you're creating another human being and women automatically try to live their healthiest lives during those nine months. You know, they'll try to walk more, do more exercise, drink more water, avoid certain substances, avoid caffeine, not drink alcohol, um, you know, not smoke, eat more fruit. And, and it's so normal and natural to assume that all of those behaviors are the healthiest things for you and your baby. And in most cases, they are. And along with those beliefs comes the assumption that you should never take medication, that anything you take harms your baby if it's not healthy, and, and vaccines fall into that category. And that is absolutely not true. The data on them, on these vaccines that are used in pregnancy, and you mentioned that flu shot and Tdap, and COVID falls into that, but we'll leave it on the side because people have such strong feelings about the COVID vaccine. So, you know, we could talk about that another time. But these vaccines have decades and decades of support behind them for two reasons, how effectively they keep pregnant women and their unborn babies healthy and for some and for some of the the vaccines healthy beyond birth like the flu vaccine can protect your baby for several months after birth before they're old enough to get the flu shot and the youngest ages are the most at risk for flu complications so infants can't get vaccinated for the flu but they're at high risk how can you protect them you get the flu shot during pregnancy create those antibodies your baby's protected if you look at hospitalization rates for newborns for flu, babies born to vaccinated women have much lower hospitalization rates for flu, much lower complication rates. So we know it works. We know it's safe. We know it's effective. Research that looked at miscarriage rates and complication rates among vaccinated pregnant women compared to unvaccinated pregnant women found that there was no difference. Baseline miscarriage rates I've heard are 12%, 13%. You could probably speak to that better. I don't know specific statistics, but yeah, like you said, it's it's been established to be something that's safe and has no differences in terms of that. Yeah. And what's very interesting is that over throughout COVID, what we're learning, and it's helping us apply that to other infections and viruses, we're learning that when a pregnant woman has an infection or a virus, we're learning more and more how toxic that is to a fetus. Now, many people assume, oh, infections are a rite of passage, right? Children get sick. Adults get sick, pregnant ladies get sick. You know what, none of that is ever good. It's never good. Many people think, oh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's not really true with infections. You know, you wouldn't deliberately break your bone 
and assume that when it heals, it's stronger. You shouldn't deliberately get sick. You shouldn't allow yourself to be you know, casual about infections and viruses. They are all pretty nasty. And what we're learning is that the, the internal conditions of the placenta and the uterus when the baby is forming is a very high concern. And infections are the highest risk for call it, causing autism, neurodevelopmental orders, premature birth, small growth, um, all of these complications. That makes a lot of sense. Let's explain why it is that it's better to get the vaccine than to acquire the infection naturally. Well, to get the infection naturally means your body needs to get sick. And there's really never a good reason to get sick. Um, I think it reflects a profound misunderstanding of what it does to your body when you have an infection, whether it's mild or severe. And I kind of like to give the example of a car. You would never really treat your car poorly on purpose or crash it or, you know, neglect it. You know that it's poor care for your car, but how much more so for your body? I think people sometimes don't understand the depth to which viruses or bacteria can be toxic, you know, to a to humans in general, but B to developing humans. And I think once we respect that, we can understand the importance of preventing those viruses and then, you know, translate that into doing everything we can to 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 avoid being in that situation. So I know you mentioned um, rubella for pregnant women. Now, when a pregnant woman has rubella, what it can cause in her baby is CRS, congenital rubella syndrome, which is a horrific disease syndrome. It comes with profound um, developmental delays and uh, mental problems, physical problems. And due to that, women who are trying to get pregnant will often be encouraged to either get an MMR or check if they're immune to rubella. And if they're not, they'll get one after, they'll get their their get the shot before trying to get pregnant. Uh, Many women aren't actively trying to get pregnant, so you can't do that for everyone. But um, one of the reasons why giving the MMR to all children is so that if your child has rubella, he won't give that to a pregnant woman who may not be um, immune. So there's a lot of diseases that people simply don't think about. You know, you think about mumps, you think about measles, but there's a lot of diseases we don't think about because it's no longer prevalent. You know, they're mostly eradicated through really good public health measures, but they're really important to still stay on top of. Right, and some of these infections can actually be asymptomatic, but still cause harm to the baby. As you mentioned, rubella is one of them. You know, there's something called CMV, which is another virus. um, And that's just, we don't have a vaccine for that one. But if a woman has it, again, they're at risk of having a baby with profound hearing loss, which rubella is as well. However, for rubella, we do have a vaccine that can protect a pregnant woman versus something like CMV, we don't have the vaccine, or, you know, toxoplasmosis. There are many different viruses, and there are also bacterial infections, which we have antibiotics for, STIs, such as syphilis. We, we have antibiotics to be able to treat it if somebody is found to have it during pregnancy, so we're lucky for that. But all of these infections can, besides for causing different complications in the mother herself, they can actually cause a lot of congenital defects in her baby. Um, So that's really important to keep in mind, like you said. And I just also want to mention, we know with the flu that pregnant women themselves 
are at higher risk for complications. And part of that uh, pathophysiology is the fact that a pregnant woman's immune system in general is a little bit uh, weaker in order to accommodate a baby, which is can be considered like, you know, a pathogen, like this strange different thing inside of the body. So, so, so that's part of the pathophysiology that goes on behind a woman who has um, a virus and why she's at higher risk for infection. So that's just something else to keep in mind. Now, I want to ask you, with the Tdap vaccine and the flu vaccine, they're both found to be safe to receive during pregnancy. Why, can you explain to our audience, is the MMR vaccine, the mumps, measles, rubella vaccine, why is that actually not recommended to receive during pregnancy? It's recommended to receive either prior to getting pregnant, and the recommendation is, is three months prior to getting pregnant. So after you get it, you should prevent pregnancy for the following three months or postpartum after you have the baby getting it then. Can you explain that to our audience? So the thing with the MMR is that it's a live vaccine. And when you have a live vaccine, there's always a theoretical risk that it will shed because it will replicate in your body and cause immunity. But there's always that theoretical risk that if you're carrying some viral load in your body, it may become an active infection. And we don't want pregnant women to develop rubella. So that is why we do not allow women who are trying to become pregnant to get the live MMR vaccine. But you just mentioned that women can't get pregnant for three months after. Um, I'm pretty sure that recommendation changed to 28 days from three months because what they've noticed is that after several decades of using the MMR and following these guidelines to make sure pregnant women don't get the live vaccine, they've noticed that no one actually ever develops the live virus from the live vaccine. It, it's a very big contentious point for a lot of vaccine hesitant people and in the anti-vax leadership spaces, they'll constantly say, oh, people are getting the measles because others are getting the vaccine around them. They're catching measles from vaccinated people. That's false. You can't get the measles from someone else who's been vaccinated because their risk of actually developing the virus from the vaccine is extremely, extremely low to non-existent. So the risk of them developing that virus that is virulent enough and replicated enough to then transmit virus to another person is very theoretical. But because we protect pregnant women to a very high degree, they simply remove the MMR from a pregnancy vaccine to making sure you take it when pregnant women getting rubella. Yeah, and I think that in general, that speaks to the credibility of the evidence-based information that we have now, right? That, you know, the flu vaccine, the Tdap vaccine, there's research that it's safe. But mm -hmm. with the MMR, even just that little theoretical risk exactly. um, with pregnant women, we're being more overly cautious. And yeah, just, yeah, and it just speaks about the epidemiology, like you said, just mentioned with that virus, where the virus is so weak where transmission, we have to have a certain amount of viral load. And I think people have become more familiar with this information during uh, the pandemic, the COVID pandemic, because, you know, if the, vir the viral load has to be a certain uh, amount of, of strength, a certain load, right? We, we, we actually measure viral loads and bacterial loads of different diseases. And um, it has to, every disease has a different threshold, but the viral load has to be 
a, a certain amount high in order to uh, transmit it to another person. And so like you said, the MMR vaccine, those viral loads are so, so, so low and so, so, so weak. And while developing antibodies in the person themselves that receive it, they're way too low to spread that to another person. Now, there are so many other common questions that people will have about vaccines, especially those who are vaccine hesitant and who want more information and way beyond the scope of the time that we have here on this podcast. So, Bwini, can you please tell our audience what is the current project that you're working on and how they can get more information? And this is especially so for healthcare workers in general and those that are active in Jewish communities and caring for um, a large population of the Jewish communities. So, you know, Jewish or not, anyone who's in that space, can you please tell us what project you're currently working on where people can get more answers, where we can spread more awareness and we, where we can spread more accurate information. So what we're currently working on is a six hour health conference for the Orthodox Jewish community, but open to anyone beyond because we're all experiencing similar um, medical mistrust, health misinformation, decreasing health preventative behaviors. You know, the pandemic caused a lot of ongoing issues that are lingering. And as far as the Orthodox community goes, we're recognizing that we really need to bring all aspects of the community together to recognize this gap. It's not just on pediatricians now to try to get children vaccinated to prevent further polio. It's beyond that. You need responsible health journalism. You need your health organizations involved. You need like Hatsala involved. You need, you know, people that recognize that as a community, you're only as healthy as a full community is because we're integral, we live together, we have immunocompromised family members, we have pregnant family members, we have infants, we have the elderly. You know, Kalyushrala Ravram Zell is that we're, we're one people. And to address that effectively, we're putting together a day for all of us to come together and first get an idea of the current state of health. And we're definitely going to be addressing polio. And I'm very excited about that because a lot of people have questions about polio. You know, how does the oral vaccine work? I heard that the oral vaccine can cause polio. Are we using the oral vaccine? Um, you know, am I at risk? Do I need a booster? Do adults need a booster? If you travel to Israel, do you need a booster? There's a lot going on with polio now. And I think it's going to be a great opportunity to um, hear about that. And the person presenting on that is actually an Orthodox Jewish um, epidemiologist from the health department in Albany who's running the polio response. And he's a wonderful colleague and he'll be talking about that. And then we're going to be talking about you know, how these vaccine preventable diseases actually manifest when you get sick, because during the measles outbreak, I don't think people really knew that there were about 20 Orthodox children in the ICU at one point. And people don't think about that. They think measles is a rash. That's not true. There is a rash, but that's not the disease. It's not a derm issue. It's a respiratory disease and it can get very severe. So one of our speakers is an NYU, um, infectious disease critical care physician. And he's been seeing a lot of vaccine preventable diseases in the ICU and a lot of Orthodox Jewish ones, you know, complications from flu, complications from varicella, which is chickenpox. So I, the, 
part of the day is kind of being grounded in the reality of what the from community is currently facing as a lot of people have retracted from common you know health behaviors but then the second half of the day is going to be talking about um collaborative ways to move forward research that came out of other from neighborhoods that have looked at how to improve trust how to improve relationships how to increase vaccination rates and improve you know um collaborative partnerships and it's going to be a very bi-directional day with a lot of doctors nurses pas community health workers um you know nosy bodies anyone's really invited as long as everyone's respectful of the topics um and i'm hoping for it to be a really great day of learning and we're serving breakfast and lunch and free drinks at the end for anyone who after all that needs a drink so i'm very excited about that and um we have blocks of tickets that are like $20 tickets right now because we've gotten donations. And I'm going to give you those coupons and you can share that with um, anyone who's interested in joining. It's in Brooklyn. It's called the Williamsburg Hotel, which is a very, very swanky place. It's on Sunday, May 21st from about 11 to 5 or 11 to 6, depends if you're staying for the networking and drinks at the end. And um, I can send you the coupon. Maybe you can attach it to this episode so people can, um, you know, click on the registration link, put that in and make sure they secure their spot. So people should find that in the episode show notes. I just love that you're a voice in healthcare spaces, you know, doing what you do. It's very different from what I do. But even in L&D, it's and in nursing in general, there's there's not a lot of people that take what they do to the general world. So I love what you do. And I'm a big fan. Oh, thank you. And I have to say, like, this is literally nursing, nursing, like, like, I so much uh, such a large percentage of what we do nursing is literally public health education. It really is. And I wish we can get more nurses to speak up and use their training, their education, their knowledge base, you know, to to keep doing that and, and be a voice for their communities, whether it's a social media community, a physical community. There's I mean, there's so much we can offer. So I love when I find people doing that. Thanks for tuning into the Happy Birthway Podcast. Head over to Yolwedit Academy on Instagram to continue the conversation. You'll find the link in the episode show notes, as well as links to any additional resources, products, and services mentioned here. If you love listening to this show, you can help it grow by sharing it with your friends and rating and reviewing it. To stay in the loop when new episodes are released, make sure to subscribe. Remember that your health needs are unique and require individualized medical advice. The podcast is not a replacement, and some of the information may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances. My mission is to educate you so that you can confidently collaborate with your healthcare team. I believe that a healthy mom and healthy baby are simply not enough. We also need a happy mom with an empowering birth experience. 